everybody, Michael Gunger here. Science Mike. And this is a special episode. We we don't go on location for many episodes. Uh, there are few people in the world like Richard Rohr that were like, all right, we'll get on a plane. Fine. <laughs> Almost everyone were like, when are you going to be in Los Angeles? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but we had a chance for all four of us to fly to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Woohoo! We ate at the old restaurant of the year nominee, P.F. Chang's. <laughs> <laughs> we were there. It was good so, though. It was really good. It was one of the best PF Changs I've ever had. When I saw that it was nominated for Restaurant of the Year, I was like, "Come on, Albuquerque, I, I love you. You gotta, you gotta do better for yourself." But anyway, all four of us went to the CAC and got to sit down for a couple hours with this amazing, legendary man, Richard Rohr. Why is it? Do you think that? our audience resonates so much with Richard Rohr, Mike. I mean, it's like, he's obviously a favorite. Anytime we put something on with him, people are like, yes, Richard Rohr, what is it? I think so many of our listeners, they're either not sure where they are with Christianity or they're so frustrated with that tradition that they're kind of done with it. But for so many of us, and I would guess the vast majority of this audience invested years or decades of early life in that tradition and no matter how you feel about it today you've been shaped and molded by christianity and at least for me sometimes it feels like like tossing it all out is is a waste i mean i spent so much time in the church and so i think richard Rohr represents such a uniquely hopeful figure for people who listen to our show i mean he's a he's a catholic friar a monk basically mm-hmm. um in in the catholic church who's you know positions on things like lgbtq equality are far out of step with our audience and yet richard's heart is so open his manner so gentle and his theology so reassuring i think he almost uniquely offers hope that there's something redeeming about the christian tradition to people who listen to the liturgist podcast well, I hope you all enjoy this third appearance of Richard Rohr on the Liturgist Podcast. It's such a pleasure to have him back. We've broken it into two episodes because it's a bit long and thought you could do it in a couple sittings if you'd like. Welcome to the Liturgist Podcast, everybody. Father, Christianity is a faith that is often defined by division. The church is splintered into an ever-increasing number of denominations and sects, all of whom place distinct claims on the nature and reality of Jesus Christ. One thing that struck me immediately about the universal Christ was the way that it bulldozed the divisions between Orthodox and Catholic, Catholic and Protestant, pre-Enlightenment and postmodern, male and female, and even spoke into faith divisions across ethnic, racial, and cultural boundaries. Such a radical notion of inclusivity is wildly subversive. What led you to speak of a universal Christ as a Franciscan? Boy, you began to answer it by the final line. It was my Franciscan professors in the late 60s who clarified for me how our own theological school was different than mainline Catholicism, that our Christology was based on Colossians, Ephesians, the prologue to John's Gospel. 
And you, you wonder, how did we get to that? Well, it was really, Francis was not a theologian. He was an intuitive genius. He just mm. did it, <laughs> did the truth, uh, much more orthopraxy than orthodoxy. Then what we needed was to give theological heft to that, because he looked like sort of a romantic, brother sun, sister moon, sister water, brother air. Everything was granted subjectivity, you know, but it still was sort of romantic and sweet, and, you know, an academic wouldn't take it seriously. So <clears throat> in the first century, when we were huge in numbers, they fled to the great universities of Europe, Paris, Oxford, Cologne, Bologna, and were anxious to create a philosophical, theological foundation to what Francis only intuited. So you've heard me use this name, Duns Scotus, who I had to study for four years. Most people have never heard of him, but he was our main teacher because he did that. Let me just give you one example. The 13th century was the rise of scholastic philosophy, which is very heady, very rational, but also very clarifying, if you could take the time to understand it. Thomas Aquinas, the big spokesman for that, said everything is analogous in being to God. You know it by analogy. Now, I wish we could at least get people that far. You know, I'd really be grateful. But Don Scotus took it a huge leap forward. He said, no, no. There is no analogy of being between creation and God. There's a univocity. That's a big word. Univocity in Latin would mean one voice. He said, you may speak with one voice of the being of God, angels, humans, animals, plants, and the earth itself. So that became the, the concept of the great chain of being. You see what you've given is ontological foundation for what I call holiness. Once you grant that, that the whole thing is grounded in creation from the beginning. There's no waiting 13.7 billion years for God to start revealing God's self. God was revealing the God self from the first moment of creation. So Don Scotus and the other name I quote several times, St. Bonaventure, those were our two great intellectuals in the first century. And you read Bonaventure, uh, he's got as many books as Thomas Aquinas. You're struck by is there's no notion of hellfire, threat, punishment. It's just optimism and hope. So forgive the long answer, but being educated in that tradition, specifically Dun Scotus and Bonaventure, gave our Christology a completely different foundation. And our, I can always remember the moment when my systematics professor quoted Colossians 1, you know, all things are recapitulated in Christ. And he took that verb, recapitulated, and translated it. And he says, if you understand this, you understand Franciscan Christology. Mm -hmm. But again, we were always a subtext. We were never condemned as heretics. The church in the 13th century 
was frankly more broad-minded than it is later when we all got defensive. We got especially defensive after the Reformation mm -hmm. and circled our wagons around a very narrow form of our orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. We had it once, uh, but it was hard to hold on to because the, you've heard me talk probably too much about how the ego needs an enemy. It needs a foil. It needs to be against something to find its own boundaries. Now, if you haven't found your boundaries in the very nature of being, you will do that. Do you understand? If you don't understand the univocity of all being, you will define yourself by differentiation. I don't know how else you can do it. I think this is one reason why we all hold on to our belief system. It does give a coherence and a radical unity to creation that uh, it overcomes what we call the first philosophical problem, which is called the one and the many. They say every philosopher in one way or another was trying to resolve how can there be unity when what we look at with our eyes is obviously diversity. And most people get lost in the diversity. In fact, almost everybody, mm -hmm. except mystics and poets and some musicians. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean some as a criticism. <laughs> but, um, you know, pretty much the nature of culture is to define itself by what it's not, what it's against. So I already had to talk to you, Hillary, about Canada. Mm. <laughs> We've got to make that very that's clear. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that we're Americans. No, come on. But that's the way the mind works. Wow. So is that an answer to your question? I hope. It is. Discovering Richard Rohr has been a solace for me as I go through this journey of deconstruction particularly Rohr's work on the three boxes, order, disorder, and reorder. During this time, I think that I've experienced moments that were really dark because I thought that I'd never get to a point of resolution. But through studying Rohr, I found that I can transition some of the things I believe into that third box of reconstruction. I think they're always going to be a part of me that will be in constant deconstruction as I discover new ignorant falsehoods that I've accepted in the past, but I think Rohr has taught me that it's okay to take time to search and to learn and to grow through this journey. And so, Father Rohr, thank you for providing that lucidity for me. One of my favorite lines in the book was, it felt kind of like a throwaway, just like a real quick thing you inserted oh, there. Can't wait, what is it? When you talk about the universal Christ and all these big ideas, there's a lot of people that think that that's outside of the big tradition of Christianity. Yes. And, of course, through the book, and you have sources that show that this has been here. Been but here. you say this line that maybe this was the big tradition, well, or what the big tradition has been trying to do, perhaps yes. without even knowing it. I wanted to hear you speak a little more to that. It, it reminded me of sort of when you look at, creation as a whole, when you look at a, a tree doing what it does, flowering its branches, it doesn't necessarily know what it's doing. It doesn't like think of what it's doing, but it has this whole genius within it that's kind of unfolding. In, in its, very, it, being. it's, in its very being. In its very being. It's innate. 
Yeah. So I wonder. We mean by the soul of things, really. Yeah. So I would just love to hear you speak to. Do you see Christianity as a whole of being led by something outside of the individuals within it? How how is it unfolding? Say it, huh? Of course. (laughs) That's perhaps the heart of our leap of faith. This trust that there is an otherness that is gracious and that is involved. Uh, What we have is, at least in a lot of Catholicism, I don't know about the other groups, but it's it's not bad will, but it's practical atheism. They believe in all kind of Mm -hmm. belief systems of redemption, salvation, but there's no sense of a gracious presence really being involved in your life in a day-to-day level. So, so you don't have to steer the ship alone. Now, I know that's been sung about and talked about in many pious ways, but God understands whatever limited uh, way our, our vocabulary works, that God is doing it in me, with me, as me. Your life is so much happier when you don't think you have to steer the ship, or you have to get it right by yourself, as if you could. (laughs) Can you feel the 500 pounds get off your back? Now, I know an unbeliever will call that the opium of the people, but when I see the mental health and even joy of people who live that way, really, that's my answer, you know. (laughs) And when it produces so many healthy, happy people by the end of their life, when they know it's not all about me, I'm about it, whatever it is. Now, what we're saying in this book is the it, the big phenomenon that we're trying to connect with, our word for that, and it's not the only word, but it's a good word, is Christ. That Christ is the naming of the collective, Mm. the collective goodness that is willing to carry and include badness, <laughs> mm. and that's Jesus. So the Christ is the life principle. That is the beginning. Genesis 1, it was good, 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 five times. Then it was very good, the sixth time. On the seventh day, the Sabbath today, uh, it says it was holy. This is a, a very coherent creation story. But for some dang reason, we preferred to start with Genesis 3. It's almost (laughs) ill-willed. Why did we do that? Well, the only way I can resolve it, and I'm sure it's not adequate explanation, but as I look at my brothers, fellow males, uh, I think men jump on something when there's a problem to solve. And since males were most of the teachers and most of the preachers for the first 2,000 years, we like a problem to solve, and we like saying we've got the answer. In fact, we've got the only answer. Um, That's just my theory of why we stupidly decided to begin with uh, Genesis 3 instead of Genesis 1. So that beginning with Genesis 1 is what I would call creation spirituality, our original blessing, original goodness, instead of what we Roman Catholics coined as original sin. Let me stop with this. When you start with a problem, you normally 
continue with the problem and end with bigger problems. You know <laughs> <laughs> I never said it that way before. I'm glad you liked it. Uh, you can't start with a problem. And that was Duns Scotus's big assumption uh, with the atonement, that Jesus cannot just be a remedy for sin because that puts us in charge of history. Mm. Our, you understand? We're the agency, and God in Jesus is simply the reactor. He said, no, Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. God begins with a cosmic vision, not dependent upon a story of someone eating an apple between the Tigris and Euphrates River around 4,000 years ago. It, just, it doesn't work. It, just, it puts us in a tribal understanding. Now, I love the Genesis creation story. It's inspired on so many levels, but not on a literal level, <laughs> even though the hints are there even in the literal reading of the text. I hope that's helpful. Richard, you've written so many books over the Too course many. of your life. Too many. <laughs> Too really. I say, who do you think you are? But anyway, <laughs> you've had ahead. a lot to say. Um, I've noticed in the, in the lead up over the last several years, you always seem to be referencing this concept of the universal Christ, the cosmic yeah, Christ. Yeah, I've been really saying, I got to make this clear before I die. Yeah. yeah. And so here it is. You did it. You wrote yeah. this book. What was this writing process like for you? Oh. Um, how did this book come to be? Mm. How did it flow in and through you? Was it sobering? Was it joyful? Was it tedious, as most writing often is? What was this process like for you? That's interesting you'd ask, because it certainly took me longer to write than any of my books, okay. almost two years. And uh, part of that was the wonderful editors I was working with became so invested in the message that they kept sending galleys back to me and saying, Richard, make this clearer. Make that paragraph follow from that paragraph. You need an example to hold people's attention. So I think there were eight iterations. That's far longer than any book I ever wrote. So I have to admit, by the seventh and eighth, I was sick of it. I said, do I have to, <laughs> do I have to read this book one more time? Oh. Uh, uh, but, yeah, so it was tedious. You used a good word. And yet, now after saying that, that's the bad news. Yeah. I'm going to say the good news. When I sat down in Lent of 2017, almost exactly two years ago, March, in fact, uh, to begin to write this, I would have to say that seven-eighths of what became this book just flowed out of me. Uh, with, But it's because I've thought about it all. So the original thing, here it is. I, you know, I was so content and with myself and all. And then the labor began. Of, but you got to make that clear. That chapter should be ahead of that chapter. And they were always right. I wonder if everybody doesn't really need an editor. There's just things here, here. editors can see that the writer can't see. That's certainly true in my case. I think many of my earlier books would be much more longstanding if I had had an editor like this. 
It was several people, actually. One of the things that I noticed in reading this book is that, while it's called The Universal Christ, it seems to be just as much about being human. Mm. And, and I'm wondering a little bit, if you, or I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that, about how mm. understanding the universal Christ allows us to be more fully human. Well, here's where we come to the balancing act, and for me as a Christian, the necessary balancing act between Jesus and Christ. I don't know that the Christ mystery per se in itself teaches us how to be human, but the Jesus arc does. It grounds the whole thing. It amorizes the whole thing. I don't know if that's even a word, but I love it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a word. That's a word. <laughs> it, uh, it personalizes the whole thing. Uh, it humanizes the whole thing. Keeps our gospel from being airy-fairy, ideology and conceptualizations flying around the universe that allow metaphysical types, which is a very small percentage of humanity. You've probably all taken the Myers-Briggs test over the... You oh, know, sure. the, the vast majority of human beings are sensate, <laughs> hands-on. Uh, they don't actually need all these conceptualizations. They just need what's right in front of them to work or make sense or be true or be wonderful or be wrong. Uh, but they, they begin with the concrete. So as I try to say in the book, I think Jesus grounds the concrete and the Christ grounds the universal. When you have both of them in healthy tandem and relationship, I think you've got the potential for a very healthy holistic religion. But up to now, we haven't had much of the universal. It's all been ethnic, nationalistic, sexist, homophobic, always uh, tribal, the tribal level. And uh, not that Jesus teaches that. He certainly doesn't. But if you're into manipulation and use, history has proven we use Jesus that way Mm -hmm. without any doubt. We used him for tribal purposes, to hold together the kingdom of France, to hold together the empire of England, you know. It became the ritual symbol system that everybody bowed before and saluted. But a sense of a universal presence that was equally present in the people of India as the people of Britain, I don't think they got that. (laughs) Nor did we, of course, with the black people or the native people. So the Christ is the necessary corrective, I hope I'm right in saying necessary, uh, to the Jesus mystery. The Jesus mystery is a necessary grounding to the Christ mystery. Hmm? So I'm hearing you say that that part of our if I could use the word redemption, would be in us recognizing that everything is all connected and has always been connected and and that we're just kind of catching up to that maybe culturally as the church. I think that one of the points of of pain for so many people in the journey of being human is the story that their bodies are bad. Yes, yes, yes. And so more specifically, when when I read the work that you've just written and the 
the text or that particular phrase that you so often God loves things by becoming them. Mm. Yeah. I wonder what Thank that you. does for us. It was about. Bono's favorite <laughs> phrase. <laughs> he, he wrote me, you've got to change the name of the book. The name of the book has to be God loves things by becoming them. You'll probably hear it in his music soon. How does this, this truth, God loves things by becoming them, and the coming together of these things that we've, we have thought as a church have been different for so long, how does that actually help us heal our experience yes. of our physicality yes. and our relationship to our embodiment? It's a supreme irony that we are the religion that believes God took on flesh and yet have yet to create a positive theology of sexuality, earth care, emotions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It became our shadow instead of our gift. Yeah. What a, and I think all the sexual addiction of everything today it's, is revealing. We didn't give the world a positive, hopeful, meaningful theology of the body. And so now it's just overreacted into sexual abuse, harassment, addiction. Uh, I mean, aren't you getting tired of watching the news? Is there anything else except who has been sexually attacked now? Yeah. Uh, but in a certain way, it's predictable. If you don't make the body good, the body becomes an instrument of manipulation, of power, of repression, and then it itself rebels against that repression and I, I see that so much in my own Catholic Church, where so many of us who were celibate and understood that in a repressive way mm. instead of an expressive way. Uh, we didn't really uh, check into the erotic meaning of life. And erotic isn't the same as genital. And that's an important distinction to make. I hope I'm an erotic person. I hope even I'm a sexual person. But don't equate sexual with genital, can you? Mm. <laughs> Although almost everybody does, almost everybody does. But the ability to take delight in someone else's face, or to, excuse me, to touch somebody, that's erotic, good eroticism. Sensual. Yeah, sensual. It's saying you're good and I'm good, and you don't need to fear me, and I'm not gonna abuse you by that touch. Mm. Wow, but that's such an enlightened level of embodiment, and we're just not there yet. We really aren't. It's one of my favorite places to hang out, looking <laughs> at what happens in our bodies and how that relates to our spirituality, so yeah. I'm sure. We're so disconnected to it, it's really sad. And so what you're disconnected from becomes shadowy, hmm. and that's what controls you. Yeah. <laughs> shadowy meaning that which I'm afraid to deal with, express, own, and so it remains literally in the shadows of the self and comes out 
in indirect ways. I almost, I'm not saying, certainly not, that God caused our horrible pedophilia scandal. But it does reveal this issue, uh, how people who thought they could deny their embodiment and be holier than thou, because so many of them were these highly ritualistic, legalistic Catholic priests and bishops, you know, that it found a way out, which was very sick. Yeah, sad, sad. I grew up in a faithful and orthodox Catholic family, and I loved it ever since I was small. It captivated my imagination and my sensibilities, and everything I did was about being the best Catholic I could be. But when I got a little older, things started to fit differently. Um, My faith became uncomfortable, and I saw people splitting off into different territories, different binaries, different politics, and it made me really uncomfortable and made me afraid I couldn't be Catholic anymore, but that the thing I had loved so much just wouldn't fit. But when I heard you on the Liturgist podcast for the first time, Father Lord, I rediscovered the love that I had had as a child and, and actually rediscovered it as a child in a way. Your theology on the Trinity, specifically the Divine Dance, freed me to enjoy relationships again in a way that I hadn't been able to. It freed me to seek unity and to seek peace in a world that was becoming increasingly divided. I found wholeness in a faith that I have always loved and want to continue to love, maybe not in the same way that I did, um, but definitely in a healthier and more whole way. Thank you so much, Father Roar, for freeing me to stay Catholic um, and to connect with God. love to explore the ways that you talk about God. You know, God loves things by becoming them. And in, in many ways, you'll talk about God as the ultimate all, the ultimate self. Yes. Um, but then sometimes you say things like what you just said of God didn't cause this thing. Or in one part, you, you mentioned how um, Jesus is God, not Mary. I'm interested in that when you move to those places of saying God is not something. It, it seems like there are lines that you draw that can well, be seen as dualistic when mo- the whole thrust of the book is non-dualistic. So yeah. what's well, the difference between the universal Christ in your mind and a more pantheistic or... Mm, that's um, what I was going to say. Yeah. Let's start by defining pantheism. Mm-hmm. Pantheism, pan means all, theism refers to God, means God and creation are equivalent You can use them with one voice. Now, here I just said I believe that. What I think is good Orthodox Christian teaching is that you must always maintain a distinction between the Creator and the creatures. Now, here's where we're finding a middle position, saying I'm not saying all things are God, but I'm saying God is in all things, and all things are in God. Now, you know the Greek word, panentheism, God in all things. So I I think that's important. I don't want to have to live up to being God. (laughs) 
That's held by the collective. I know I did not in my present form exist from all eternity. I know I'm not morally perfect. I know I'm not all powerful. So it punches you with the first dramatic good news, but then pulls back and says, but you're only a part and not the whole. So I would define the Christ as the inclusive notion of God, and you and I as the included. But to be the included is not the same as being the includer. (laughs) So uh, I am, maybe I'm just trying too hard to be orthodox, but to (laughs) me it makes makes perfect sense that I know I'm not the includer. Now I learn a little bit of that from God and learn how to broaden my uh, capacity to include because God is the great includer. You know, my first well-known book was one called Everything Belongs. Love that book. Many people started with that. In fact, I told the staff just this week that's what they should write on my tombstone, really, because that's my only message. How could it not belong if it's here, Yeah. Yeah, or if you don't want to call God the great includer, call God the great allower, which is very different than the almighty God language, omnipotent God language that all of us grew up with. Because uh, that, that creates atheism. You, you play the almighty omnipotent card too much, then they'll just see a thousand places where it ain't true. Yeah. <laughs> If God is almighty, why didn't he do something about slavery? Yeah. Why didn't he, he, she, do something about, you know, the Holocaust? You know, like when I was making the point, Mary is not God. I, I'm trying to keep her in her true place. If you continue, I think, in that same page, it says she isn't God. She's us. <laughs> she's the included one, but the feminine symbol for, for at least those of us from the Orthodox in Catholic tradition. She's the symbol of the eternal yes that God needs from all humanity. Now, animals and trees, we call this instinct or intuition, I guess, or genetics, they have the yes planted in them naturally. You and I have the yes planted in us voluntarily (laughs) because you can't have love without freedom. You can't, love does not exist except in the realm of freedom. So preserving that freedom which God has given us to uh, name the animals, to, uh, to sin, we're, we're up to Genesis 3 now, was God's great risk. The great risk God took so that he could be loved, she could be loved freely in return not out of fear, not out of guilt, not out of shame. And once you go down that road, you realize how many centuries we wasted on fear-based religion. Because if you threaten people into God, if you threaten people into belief, the final product is not love. Let me just leave it at that. It doesn't produce loving people. I've been a priest 49 years this year, uh, I just uh, fear 
that we created a set of filters in all of our denominations. None of us are free from this. So it must be the nature of the ego. We created a filter that in fact let in fear-based people. They were the ones attracted to the message. When I see the lack of civil rights, <laughs> the lack of kindness, love, caring, and, and lack of service, the vast amount of Christians, in my observation, I hope I'm wrong, but they appear to be attenders at services, <laughs> not lovers of the world. Do you understand? That doesn't even need much proof. It's overwhelmingly true that we defined ourselves by attending and intellectually believing, but not by loving. Because, uh, again, you start with a problem, you end with a problem, or an even greater problem. When you start by appealing to fear and threat, or using threats, I don't think you gather the great lovers. And I say that having met so many activists here in our own school. We're going on our 32nd year of the center. And we founded it to help people who were working for social change uh, do it better. Do it from a place of love, a place of freedom, a place of grace. But it also made me aware of how most of the students who came had not been trained in that. And that's why they left Christianity again and again and again. It was not a school of love. It was a school of conformity, mm. which my own seminary was. You were rewarded and promoted to the next grade if you had shown you knew how to conform. This was especially strong in Catholicism, I think, but I found it takes different forms in every, every yeah. religion. Yeah. So you end up with an unloving whole. Love does not dominate the field. It's obedience, loyalty, saluting whatever needs to be saluted, uh, but not building homes for the poor. Let's just make it very practical. I have a follow-up question to his question on pantheism and your response on panentheism. Oh, yeah, I didn't complete that. Please, go ahead. Go uh, ahead. <laughs> no, really. <laughs> I lose my train of thought. No, it was, it was good. Uh, so in, in The Universal Christ, one of the things that struck me most about the book was your assertion that comes up many times uh, around the whole thing being sacred. Oh, yes. And oh, yes. we grow up with so many dichotomies around yes. Yes. secular and sacred, sacred. Yes. Uh, you know, supernatural and natural. natural yeah. And, and I, I found that wildly provocative of you to basically... That's a good word, provocative, yeah. yeah. To, to break those barriers and also then to assert that the whole thing is a miracle. Um, and I, I mean, we're seeing a large move in the church around what someone calls supernatural culture. Um, and I know you have a lot of experience or have had waves of renewal or charismatic understanding yes, in your history. Yes. How do you reconcile your Catholicism, your charismatic leanings in terms of, you know, the activity of the Holy Spirit and potentially even the idea of gifts of the Holy Spirit, while also 
understanding this universal concept that everything belongs and there is no divide between natural and supernatural? There's no, let me start with the answer uh, in one sentence, but then try to fill in the gaps. There is no distinction between natural and supernatural except in the mind. Now, but that's a distinction because <laughs> how you operate in the mind is how you're going to operate. So, yeah. so once the mind accepts that. Now, if you need some scripture, remember the wonderful story in Acts where uh, God says to Peter, how dare you call anything unclean that is clean. Huh? Mm. Where, and, and they took that for Peter to move out of his tribal Judaism to a Catholic, you know, the way I'm using the word, universal notion that was beyond tribalism. Karl Rahner, one of the, my five greatest teachers, he was a German Jesuit. In fact, the first frontispiece quote is from him. But he, his whole teaching was on the supernatural existential. Hmm. And, I mean, he goes at great intellectual length. In essence, you might be able to say, well, that's a secular thing and this is a sacred thing. Again, you're doing it in your mind. But on the level of existence, encounter with reality, there is no place where God is absent. There is no place that may be called profane, just as oh, yeah. Peter is told in Acts of the Apostles. So the supernatural existential. In the case of existence, practical life, everything is holy. If your mind allows it to be. You know, what reveals that as a given is this whole notion of forgiveness, you know, which might be God's great work to forgive reality for being imperfect. And you've probably heard me say in years past, every time God forgives, God is saying, I would rather have a relationship than be right. Mm. You know? I know you broke the law. That's not the point anymore. I want to maintain relationship. God has the authority, apparently, the ability, the inclusivity to do that. So I always say divine perfection is precisely the ability to include imperfection, and that's God's prerogative. <laughs> but what we have usually operated out of is a human notion of perfection, which is almost always the exclusion of seeming imperfection. And what we see after 2,000 years is we cannot any longer grant that right to human beings wow. to decide you know, what's sacred and what's profane because we pollute it again and again and again. I think the gospel takes away from us the right to say that's sacred and that's profane. And so I'm calling that, I don't know if I used the word in the book, ontological basis for holiness. Ontology is the science of being. So once we find holiness planted in everything from the moment of its creation, from the beginning, then there's no picking and choosing anymore. Do you understand? It's not up to you to decide that white people have the image and black people don't. Where'd that come from? That came from the ego. That came from the power needs of, of a group. And it's been so constant and continues now that I have no reason to believe it's going to change unless we declare the ontological basis in reality itself. Well, 
universal, ubiquitous. The gift is given. We are, the, Paul was searching for words like, you are sealed in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. There, uh, you can tell he understands this, at least at an intuitive level. But later Christianity, particularly in the West, did not understand that. It, it limited it to human beings, and as history went on, to less and less human beings. So it hardly ended up being good news for all the people, yeah. as the angels announced already at Bethlehem. This incarnation is good news for all the people. We just couldn't comprehend that level of inclusivity. You know, you've heard me teach from um, Ken Wilber his uh, phrase that many of us use of transcend and include. We've turned it around, and the students are finding so much more help in it. We now speak of it as the principle of include and transcend. Mm. We put the word include first, and that has garnered universal response from all of our students. My God, that's the better way to say it. I never thought I could improve on Ken Wilbur. <laughs> <laughs> but your very ability to include is the transcending Sentence. to a higher yeah. level of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Whereas you, you leave it up to the ego, transcend, and once I get higher, I can include. That's going to have some dangerous results. But include and transcend. I'm glad I could say that on this podcast because that's new. I wasn't saying that for the last 10 years. <laughs> this has been part one of a two-part episode with Richard Rohr called The Universal Christ. Please continue to the next file in your podcast feed to hear part two. This episode was produced by Victory Palmazano. Project management was provided by Corey Pig. Editing and sound design by Greg Nordine. Music was provided by Michael Gunger and Tyler Chester. Management was by Brent Cradle. And your four hosts this week have been Hillier McBride, Michael Gunger, William Matthews, and me, Science Mike. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in just a moment for part two.